So welcome to this week's episode of Thrive. Today's conversation is about designing conversation. And I'm here with Daniel Stillman, who is a coach, a consultant, a keynote speaker, and author of the new book, Good Talk, How to Design Conversations That Matter. Um, we were actually introduced by a friend of ours and colleague, mutual colleague, uh, Jay Malone of New Haircut. And I'm super excited that he felt compelled enough to connect the two of us. So Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. I, I expect an excellent conversation since we've already had a good conversation before we even hit record. <laughs> well, maybe we can start uh, with sort of the, the backstory of how did Good Talk come to be? How did it come to fruition? Um, and just would love to hear a little bit more about what the either the pain points or the gaps in the market or, or whatever that story was for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's layers with everything. But for me, I used to work in design, industrial design and UX design. And I worked with my clients to try and discover what they needed, what they wanted, what their uh, customers needed and wanted. And we did that thing where you go out and you do the research, you do the insights and you design workshops, you bring them together, you design presentations. And no one really taught me how to do that in design school. And it wasn't until many, many years later that I, I was working as a facilitator, teaching facilitation and design thinking with a group in Australia. They called their facilitation practice conversation design. Mm. And I initially thought that that was a super douchey way to describe <laughs> what they did. I was like, you're not designers. What does that even mean? But it really put a little bug in my brain yeah. because as a designer moving from industrial design to UX design, then I became aware of experience design and service design. And when you have those new words, you start seeing the world in a different way. When you start to see the world as services, you're like, well, this product is just connected to this big intangible surface, service. And so then I was just like, what does it mean to design a conversation? I knew how to design an experience. I knew how to design a service. And so I actually sat down. I did four interviews with four people I knew and respected. Uh, Dave Gray, who wrote, co-wrote a book called Game Storming. My friend Abby Covert, who wrote a book called How to Make Sense of Any Mess, a wonderful book about information architecture. Um, my friend Leland Mashmeyer, who is now the chief creative officer at Cho Bonnie. And uh, my friend, uh, Philip McKenzie, who has a podcast now as well. And I said to them, I was like, what does conversation design actually mean to you? Like, what do those two words mean? Mm. And they were like, it's weird. It's interesting. It's intriguing. Uh, it means this. It doesn't mean that. It, it, it was a provocation. And honestly, I thought, this is weird. And I, it took me a year to finally get around to starting a podcast about it. And in a way, like that's the origin story for me is that like I started this podcast in 2017 to say like, okay, well, if we can in fact design conversations and it seems that we are, what are we designing? Like literally what's the material of design? And I don't know, like two years in, I got tricked into writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to put it and and right exactly and so that that to me is the origin story is like one is the pain point of working in a creative agency and being like how do i guide this conversation like when you learn about design thinking 
They're like, well, there's a structured approach to having this dialogue with my clients. And then when I saw someone else run a workshop where they physicalized what we thought our ideal experience for this product was using collage, I was like, I can do this. I'm going to tell my boss, like for this workshop we have coming up with our clients, like I'm going to do this word and photo collage thing. And he's like, what is this? Is it, is this going to, that sounds weird. Is it going to be, and I'm like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> I saw someone else do this and I could totally get away with this. And it was amazing. Yeah. And Sometimes so you just me, have like, to trust, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what he had to do. Right. <laughs> I, I had seen it for myself and we had this conversation where one client was like, no, I don't want this product to be magical. And the other part, the other guy in the client team was like, this thing should be magical. And so we could have this conversation about, well, what does magical mean? Right. And that's, to, to, to understand what your client means by magical and why one half of the team doesn't want it when the other half of the team does. does. Like that was a gift yeah. to be able to facilitate that conversation. Yeah. And so to me, I don't think I, I, in my bio now, I say like Daniel Stillman designs conversations for a living and insists that you do too. And I, I think we are all designing conversations as well as we can with yeah. whatever tools we've been uh, given or stolen or absorbed like we, it's like, we remember maybe being taught how to play chess, but very few of us remember being taught how to talk. Right. And so I think it's really important. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a long origin story, but that's how I feel about it. No, that's, it's great. I mean, it gives a lot of context and I love your mantra, which is like, we live our converse, our lives, one conversation at a time. Um, and yeah. what you talk about a lot in the book is the fact that we need this range, right? Like yeah. conversations have structure, as you just mentioned, um, and gave a good example. Um, but we're not, we're not great at sort of the dichotomy of the structure of those conversations, right? So we can be, uh, as you say in the book, like forward thinking or forward and fast, or we can be slow and methodical yeah. and thoughtful. Um, what, why is that so challenging for people? Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it, there is a, there's a, uh, maybe it's a false dichotomy. There's definitely a tension. Do you know the Rudyard Kipling poem, If? Uh, it, it, it's, um, there's one uh, phrase where he says, if you can talk to kings, no, if you can talk to crowds and not lose your virtue and talk to kings and not lose the common touch. Mm. There's this idea of like, can you in fact wow a crowd? Can you talk to some, to power uh, clearly? Like that's, that's range. Right. Um, I think a lot of people are straight, uh, like you do, you're a keynote speaker. It's, it's, it's scary to go up on stage and it's a different type of conversation because you can't see the audience. You don't get the Sometimes same. Sometimes those in, lights are a little blinding. <laughs> yeah. Those lights are a little blinding. If you've ever done a webinar, right? Like you're talking to the air. Right. And so you don't get that feedback that you get in a normal dialogue. Right. And I think team dialogues, they need to be designed and are usually poorly designed. Like, half of what I think org designers do that I've seen is they just give people better team patterns, team dialogue patterns, making sure that everyone speaks the same amount. Right. But this thing that you and I were talking about, which is how hard it is to introspect and have time with ourselves. And that's, yeah. I don't, I don't think that's a modern malady. I think it's very easy to say, Oh, it's because of phones, but it's slowing down is hard. Yeah. Uh, in doing inner work, is hard because we are human doings not human beings right, right right we what we what we do is we output and there's this classic zen concept of the bowl being being but the but the space in the bowl is non-being 
right? And what you actually need is the space in the bowl. And and so we 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 see what we do, but the the non-being emptiness silence looks like nothingness right. and isn't valued in the same way because you buy the bowl, but you but you because there's no way to buy space. Right. You buy the container, but you buy you're the buying it. You're buying it to fill it up or to do something with it. Yeah, and so like, this is something I talk about with how when when I think clients are actually buying their time from me. Mm. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, right. Like they, when I am on site or when they are on a call with us, they are uh, required to set aside their regular everyday lives and to be present mm. and to put away their phones. They're like, Oh, Kelly's going to be here tomorrow. We have to actually get our shit together and focused and do real work. Right. Um, and so I think, I think time is obviously the most precious thing we have and time yeah. with yourself is the hardest thing to get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's this, uh, this concept that you also talk about, like the fact that we are constantly designing conversations, whether we know it or not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we are clearly not conscious of it. I mean, hopefully this episode will bring consciousness to it, but we're not conscious of it, but we do it all the time. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're asking the question, what would happen if we designed these conversations from a holistic perspective to maximize meaning and connection? So what do you yes. actually mean by that? <laughs> well, so the first thing is you have break to take a step back. I'll break it down for you like a math problem. I, maybe it's just because I come from a combination of like, I, I have a degree in physics and I studied industrial design. And so there's this idea that if we're designing, we're designing something. Like if I want to make a, a curve more interesting, we spend an entire semester thinking about fast versus slow curves. I'm looking at the painting behind you. And I'm like looking at those curves. I'm like, oh, I see how it speeds up and it slows down. Uh -huh. And if, if I want to change or critique the, the, the physicality of something, I know what to critique. But mm -hmm. with conversations, we don't even know what we're looking at because mm -hmm. we don't see the structure. In it. It's like trying to play chess without understanding um, moves, right? And, and, and modularity of moves. And so for me, one of the things I started to realize was that there were, I, I wanted to try and give people the smallest number of things to look at when they're designing a conversation. And one of the most interesting ones is uh, space and interface. Mm -hmm. The fact that a conversation happens in a place, right? Right now, Zoom is the interface between our conversation, yeah. but our conversation is also happening. You've got a piece of paper nearby you with a series of questions that you want to try and uh, address. And mm -hmm. so you're having a constant conversation between your plan and what's happening. Mm-hmm right? Yep. There's, a, there's a narrative structure that you have. That's another thing that conversations are made out of stories. And it's being held in this space. And so one of the things, one of the stories that I thought was interesting enough to put in the book was the story of this woman who, uh, on NPR, she talked about leaving voice messages to herself. Oh. She'd go on a, a dog, she'd walk her dog, and she would call herself and talk through her problems. And so just literally taking that time is one thing, but then you can listen to them afterwards. And That's we all know how much it is. We are so much better at solving other people's problems than our own, yeah. right? And so what she did was she put her problems on an interface outside of herself and she could listen to her problems as if it was someone else's problem, mm. right? So she literally like peeled the conversation, her inner conversation out from inside her head where we think at 4,000 words a minute right? Speech is, I wish I could remember the statistic right now. We, we can talk 
much, much more slowly than we can think. Our, our thoughts are so fast. Yeah. And so peeling it out, bringing it outside, changing the interface of the conversation immediately makes it easier to uh, address and to process. It slows things down immediately. And so yeah. I think one of the challenges is that people don't even know what they're designing. And so you can steal patterns. You're like, oh, okay, let me start leaving voice messages to myself. But to me, I think understanding the why is more interesting because there's another story of like Amanda Palmer deciding, uh, do you know Amanda Palmer? She was a super famous TED Talk on the art of asking. I don't. I'm going to oh, put that in the show notes though and listen to it she's, afterwards. She's married to Neil Gaiman, who's also a badass. And there's a story of... Um, them having a dinner conversation and she's like hey what if we didn't talk but we just passed notes to each other and they asked the the waiter for a pen and paper and the, it was basically texting yeah but with time to think because writing as an interface for a conversation it slows things down mm -hmm. and so they would doodle something she would write something and slide it across the table and while he was writing she got to like enjoy her dinner and right. just be in her thoughts and maybe think about what she was saying while he was writing something back. And so th this is what I mean by designing conversations. There are ways to slow it down, to speed it up, to physicalize it, to internalize it, to switch it up and to be playful with yeah. the way that we yeah. in interact and that will radically change the way that we're communicating. Yeah, it's really interesting. As soon as you were telling that story, um, it made me think of a story. Uh, just recently, I went up to um, a Buddhist monastery in Pine Bush, New York, and I went with a friend of mine. And in the middle of the day, there was a, a lunch uh, with the monks that that live on the you know the residence or the campus there. And so the entire time it was a silent lunch, right? So mm. we're all eating. The only thing that you could hear were like the clanking of the, the utensils and chopsticks and whatnot. And um, it made me have a conversation with myself while I was eating. Yeah. And I was so purposeful and so intentional and also really excited that once that silence was broken, I was so clear about some of the questions that I wanted to ask my friend about her experience or ask one of the monks sitting next to me. Yeah. And it was the slowing down and the silence that allowed me to do that. Really, yeah. really interesting. I hadn't thought yeah. about it that way until you just told that story. So like great music is not just constant noise at like one volume. There's right. musicality to great conversations. And that is what I would call cadence. Mm -hmm. You know, when does a beat become, when does a groove become a rut? You listen to a bass line where it's like, boom, you know, and it's like it, it pulls you forward and there's interest. Yep. There's a variety. And I think that's something that we're missing too. And so just having a pattern of mm. silence and not silence yeah. is essential. And loudness and softness and uh, high and low. People don't know how to vary their voices and speak with a musicality, right. but we don't do that for ourselves at all. Well, that was going to be sort of uh, along the lines, like my next question was about like the inner voice work that you do. Um, yeah. I think that's um, for me, that's super fascinating. I'd love to yeah. hear a little bit more about that. Well, step one, I, I, um, if you've never listened to Julia Cameron and she does that, she wrote the artist's way and the artist's way at work. I did a workshop, a writing workshop with her. I, um, I took my mom. It was super fun. And when anybody would step up to the microphone with a problem, the first thing Julia Cameron would say is, are you doing your morning pages? And the morning pages are these three pages of um, 
free hand, free thinking, just like scraping off the first layer of your brain first thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. And that is like her base level of like, you must be doing your morning pages. Like that is the fundamental first conversation to have. Is that like the same thing as journaling or any just calling it something different? You know, it might just be fancy journaling, but um, (laughs) Julia believes it's just fancy journaling. (laughs) The morning pages is not like, it's not like, oh, so this happened and this happened. It's literally like, you write it as quickly as possible. It's free association. It might be a list of, of song lyrics. It's, it's sometimes I've written a half a page of, I don't want to be doing this. 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 Okay. Right. Whatever it is. So I don't, I don't, I think journaling is like, oh, so last night, last week, Tom did this and I don't feel good about that. Versus like morning pages is just like, I don't even care what's in it. It doesn't matter at all. And it doesn't have to be a narrative. It doesn't have to be sentences. It's yeah. Okay. Got it. So it's just like a a brain dump. Brain dump. Exactly. Don't like barely pick up your pen. Don't think. Just get it out. But right. Um, But handwritten, not typed. Handwritten. Okay. It's absolutely essential. Um, I just got back to my morning pages like a week ago um, because I like to have space. I don't want to just be, (laughs) I want to have a, a, you know, a a flow between doing it and not doing it. But the, the inner voice stuff it's fascinating. Um, there's a whole school of therapy called inner family systems. There are some inner family systems cards where you look at, you know, a, a, a grumpy, sullen teen being yelled at by like a mother and there's a mess everywhere. And there's a beautiful, happy family picture in the back. And it's like, okay, well, what is the family dynamic in here? And then where's that dynamic exist in me? Mm. But the way that I've done inner voice work with my therapist is whenever I have an internal conflict, it's actually naming the parts and sometimes physicalizing the parts. So that if I have an inner critic, maybe you have an inner critic too. We all um, do. We, really? It's not just me. I'm normal. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when I, when I struggle with my inner critic, we name it, we give it a name and we actually localize it in the room. We put it in a space. Like give it a name, it. give it a name, like calling it what it is or giving it a name like David. Like, yeah, whatever. It could be okay. David or okay. it could be like uh, the taskmaster. Okay. okay. Right. So like Which an archetype. Nice, like, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I name it for myself. It's like, and I drew it. I have drawings somewhere where I drew all of the different parts where it's like, he's like at a millstone, you know, how like you put an ox around like a millstone and you just like push it around and grind out that. That's what I feel sometimes. I just have to grind out more stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, okay, well, let's put the taskmaster over there. And what do you want to say to him? What does he want to say to you? What do you need from him? What does he need from you? And that is actually having a conversation mm. with yourself. Mm. And it is much easier when you have somebody coaching you through it. Um, you can also do it for yourself. So when I teach my facilitation master class, I do an exercise called the facilitator's hats. And people draw the roles that they think they take on as a facilitator ones that are hard for them to take on which ones are easier and joyful for them uh, which ones are, um, are are sort of like outside of their reach mm-hmm. and then we do some physical sorting where they start to think about well, like what's in the core what's in the shadows what do they want to bring into the center what's the pyramid of facilitation for them mm-hmm. and getting introspective about what is the role that I really need to be focusing on right now? And and it's been really interesting because I, I made this deck of cards and it was internally very struggling for me because um, I enjoy people drawing their own. And 
but I, I decided to just take, I've been doing this for like five years now. So I went through five years of people's facilitators, hats, drawings, and just made a deck of like 40 some odd ones that I liked. Mm-hmm. And the other day I was, I had them in my pocket cause I was going to show somebody a prototype and I was going to this event and I, like many people suffer from mild social anxiety. And I thought to myself, how do I need to show up at this thing? Like, what do I want to be? What, what's my goal? Like, what am I going to do here? And I literally pulled out three facilitators hats at random. And one was the nourisher. It's this big top hat where like the brim of the top hat is filled with food, mm-hmm. you know? So like, as in, like, that's something we have to do when we gather people, we have to nourish them. Right. And the other one, was the fun hat. Like it's got a big propeller on it because sometimes we just need to have fun. And yeah. the other one was a detective hat. Okay. And I was like, whoa, I'm going to be the fun nourishing detective tonight. Like, I don't even know what that means. But it was this wonderful provocation for me to think about how to show up playfully and be like, yeah. I, know how to, I know how to pull those parts out of myself. Yeah. If I'm thinking to myself, Daniel, let, let's be nourishing today. I know how to pull out the nourisher in me. And I know how to be a detective to ask really deep questions. Yeah. And that's really interesting that, you know, because we all have all of these different um, parts, archetypes, aspects, whatever you want to call them, we all can, we can pull from all of these different things. And I like the fact that you're like, that you paused and you had that moment of reflection of like, what is my intention? Who do I want to show up as in this particular event? And let me let somebody else decide that which in this case was the card, right? Or the set of cards. Right. That's pretty cool. I think that's a really, really cool thing. The, the cards themselves remind me a little bit of, um, are you familiar with the Q&E cards, questions and empathy cards from Michael Ventura that go along with his book, Applied Empathy? No, I don't, but I do know Michael. Okay, so, so he's been on the podcast and, and um, yeah, so I have actually right behind me a set of those cards. And funny enough, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine over text message this morning and she was talking about um, convening and I like pulled the cards out and I was like, oh my God, these questions are great. That's exactly, you know, so, so applicable. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting how you can use different cards like that to either ask questions or to um, sort of not dictate, but give you some inspiration as to how you want to show up or um, who you want to be in, in each given yeah. day, right? And that goes back to your, your whole thing about like, we're, we are really uh, living our lives and, and designing these conversations one at a time. So it's- We it's have choice. It's yeah. to illustrate that we even have choices is huge. Because most of the time I think we, I'll just use I, I often respond reflexively, right? So if I'm thinking about how I'm going to show up at this party, I'll just be like, I'll just, I'll just pull it for myself or I'll make a choice or I'll be anxious about it. And so giving ourselves the recognition that I've got a whole deck of cards of how to be empathetic to somebody, right? I have an infinity of choices. I don't think it's scary. I think of it as liberating. Like, yeah. oh, I could, I could show up and uh, I could be a dick. Like, that's a choice, <laughs> right? That is a choice. But some people make that choice without even realizing there are other choices. True, right? true. Right? That's it's just like lack to of be awareness. hard-nosed on purpose. It's lack of, a lack of introspection and yeah. time and being like, what do I want? What do I need? Yeah. Just, just taking a moment and saying, like, well, what, what are my ways what are my options on the table of showing up and which is the best to actually get me what I want. My, my fiance and I talk about this all the time because we don't really fight much 
um, because there's this idea of like, well, why would I yell at you about the ironing board being out for three days? Like, that's not actually going to get me what I want. Right. And, also, and honestly, I don't really care. But the other day I was like, hey, honey, I noticed you took out the ironing board, which we never, you know, it's not ever really used. I was like, what's the ironing board doing? She's like, oh, well, I, there's this thing I pulled out of the back of my closet. I want to iron it. So I thought if I took out the ironing board, it would encourage me <laughs> to do it. And I was like, cool. And then like another three days later, I was like, hey, so what's going on with the ironing project? <laughs> and she's like, how's the ironing project going, honey? Yeah, I know. And she's like, well, I'm beginning to get started on uh, thinking about doing it. I was like, oh, let's dig into the process of <laughs> beginning to get started on doing this. Tell me more about this. And we just laughed hysterically about oh my this God. idea of like and so then she's like the next day she ironed the thing and right, and right. you know put it away because like that is just such a different way yeah. now that I, I was able to do that because I love her tremendously and I find her hilarious and amusing and everything she does right. uh, and so to me like I could have been like what's the goddamn ironing board doing out and in fact we sometimes pull that voice out the old yeah. Jewish married couple for fun <laughs> Just like we pretend to argue, it's like, what, you, you take out the ironing board and what is it, furniture now? It's going to be there for how many years? Should we, should I put some flowers on it? What do you think? <laughs> right? Because that's even more ridiculous. Oh, like, yeah, let's right. just play that role of oh the my absurd, God. Uh, crotchety. Well, is that really, that's couple. kind of, that is designing a conversation. That's just designing yeah, an amusing, fun, uh, yeah, amazing conversation. I'm letting out my aggression in a, in a hilarious way, uh, potentially, at least to Janet. Um, and so that to me is like being thoughtful and playful with how right. we express our, right. ourselves and oh, what we I love want that. what we need. Yeah, yeah try, that. try that on. Uh, it's always fun to be a crotchety old couple. Okay, I got to <laughs> practice my Jewish accent though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just watch The Princess Bride. It always helps. The, okay. the, the Miracle Max and, uh, and his wife, whose name I, I I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. <laughs> All right. Well, I am going to put um, links to the book and uh, some of your social channels in the show notes. Um, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on the show. This has been such a great conversation. I don't know if I've laughed so much on a show before, so I appreciate that, if nothing else. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's been really fun. This episode has been brought to you by Workamajig, the number one creative agency management software. Show notes at thrive.workamajig.com. Find out how your creative agency can become more productive and more profitable. Schedule your demo at thrive.workamajig.com.